Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, hopefully, this will be all right. Let me try that again. Let me tell you a little secret about microphones. I've always been curious, you know, where do you put the lapel mic? And so when I lived in the Memphis, Tennessee area, we had some work done on our PA system and uh, redoing our buying new mics. And so uh, I was up there with the tech people and I said, okay, I've got a question. <clears throat> we debate this all the time. So um, where do you put the microphone? And he said, well, the rule of thumb is that you take your fist and you put it under your chin and you put the microphone under your fist. And I said, which chin? You know, it's, uh, <laughs> you need to try to figure out exactly where it does need to go because it can make a difference. I can, you can hear every time I breathe if I get it too close or you kind of have to strain if I get it too far away. And so hopefully I've got it uh, to work. I want to thank the elders at the Lehman Avenue congregation for the invitation. Uh, truly grateful that you have uh, the wisdom and the compassion to deal with this subject. Um, it's a real needed discussion to have. Has always been a needed discussion, but we haven't always uh, been willing enough to discuss those things until we get an opportunity to do that. My wife's familiar with the Lehman Avenue congregation. She drive up for a preacher's wives retreat annually and she would worship uh, with the folks there and so she she bragged on you for years and I never could seem to get loose long enough to come with her so I'm anxious to meet uh, you folks uh, you are truly privileged to have the Pollards with you uh, they're a, a really quality folks and uh, they did go to college with my son and so um, uh, he brags on them all the time that uh, I don't know that they're perfect, but the way he describes them, they sound that way. And, uh, but he uh, treasures their friendship, and so do we. This subject, anxiety and depression. Uh, let me tell you a little bit of how I got to be where I am. Uh, I did not intend or set out to or want to um, get further education or get a Ph degree, uh, it just wasn't my desire. Uh, I'm a minister by heart and I love to preach and teach. I love to work with folks. And as soon as I started preaching a 25 year old young man, I had a passion for uh, sharing the scriptures with folks and helping people in their lives. And I found out early on that uh, people who came to me thought I knew how to counsel. And I did not know how to counsel people in their situations of life. Had very little life experience. I thought I probably had as good a grasp of the scriptures then as I ever have. But taking those scriptures and getting to the point where people could coherently and methodically process those things themselves and make their own decision, I was at a loss. Sometimes they came to me so distraught with traumas in their life that I was I was afraid if I quoted one more passage, they were gonna have a nervous breakdown because that would just be one more thing that they didn't measure up to. And so I knew the scriptures had the answers, but I didn't know how to get them to the point where they could listen themselves and make application in their own lives. And so I went back, I went back to school uh, literally out of self-defense. I thought, I don't wanna push somebody over the edge and I wanna help people, so how do I do that? 
So my intentions were to take a few classes and learn a few things and become a better minister. Well, with that, you know, you get a, a degree and other preachers start saying, well, I'm not a counselor, but I know someone who is. And they start sending everybody your way and saying, well, uh, I don't do counseling, but he does. Well, that wasn't my intent to uh, become a counselor. Uh, I am a minister who happens to counsel. And that's how I'd like to be looked at. Uh, oftentimes that gets reversed because counseling is a ministry. It is helping folks. And so I can combine those two. So with that, more and more people came looking for answers. And, and um, so just naturally and over a period of time, got more education. And that's how all the letters got after my name. Uh, but I am still Jerry Martin, who is a minister of the gospel. And I believe the scriptures have the answers. But I need to share with people where they are, things that can help them do what they need to do. This subject that we're talking about today, these subjects, anxiety and depression. Pre-COVID were kind of secret subjects. You know, people who were suffering with them knew they were real. Their family members knew they were real, but they didn't talk out loud about it. The person who's struggling with it often didn't feel comfortable talking out loud about it because people might think they were less than a Christian. That maybe their faith wasn't strong enough. And so it's kind of that secret conversation that a lot of people have. It wasn't done publicly. And unfortunately, sometimes in our spiritual environment, we just really never dealt with it out loud. Now we knew it, and all ministers know it exists, but getting to the point where we could just address that in a public way, we weren't really sure. Would that cause people who are struggling with it to feel like you've broken confidence or something? Would it cause people who don't struggle with it think it's a waste of time? And so it, it became a very difficult thing to, to try to deal with. A lot of times the elders would deal with folks in their congregation who were struggling with it but would be at a loss. They are shepherds of souls, and so they want to help people where they are to get where they need to be, but didn't always have those abilities, that understanding of really what anxiety and depression is. But if there's anything positive that came out of COVID, we're here talking about it out loud today, aren't we? It was advertised, publicly advertised, that we're going to talk about it today. You know why that is? Because all of us were introduced, maybe for the very first time in our lives, we were introduced at some level to anxiety and depression. Because everything that we knew was shut down. Now, I'm not talking about, oh, we just grounded airplanes for a few weeks. I mean, our lives were shut down. Well, I'll just, I'll just run to the grocery store. No, you won't run to the grocery store. Well, I'll just run over to Grandma's. No, you won't run over to Grandma's. Oh, I'll just take this time where I'm not going to work and I'm going to fly to see friends. I'm going to take that vacation. No, you're going nowhere. And in some places, you don't go outside your house. You don't have contact with anybody else. And if you happen to be separated from your family, you might or you might not have an opportunity to be reconciled with that family. 
during that immediate period of time. I'm telling you, folks who had never even fathomed looking up a definition to depression or anxiety felt it. We're going to talk about some of those definitions in this first session. That maybe we wouldn't have had this discussion if it were not for COVID. But all of us found ourselves, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> um, what do I do about this? How long is this going to last? You see, in January of 2020, after preparation a month before that, uh, in my world, I was going to spend a whole year following the theme of 2020 vision in 2020. I put lots of time and study and effort into that. It was going to be inspiring for all of us to say, look, it is important for us to have the right kind of the spiritual sight and to have our lives in order and, and to really be able to see where we currently are and where we want to go and to have all the vision we ought to have. And I'd already had two speaking appointments by the time February ended, and I used that, and we were inspired by just thinking about we need to really get focused. Now, this is going to be a great year. I mean, this is an exciting year. I mean, I had all the PowerPoints with all the visuals. I mean, I'd spent months in preparation for that. Well, my wife didn't want to sit and watch those PowerPoints while we were in-house for all those months. She'd been part of my preparation of those, and guess what? In our assemblies, and we never, we're, uh, we worship, we never stopped assembling, but we had just a handful of folks there. And we did the live stream, and it's just something about the, the live stream and that theme that just didn't seem to fit anymore. <laughs> people couldn't see any further than right here. So everything changed. Elders met and said, okay, what do we do next? I mean, okay, here's what the instructions are. And, and we don't know what is going to turn out this code. We don't know how it might be. Okay, well, maybe we'll just, uh, as we did, rope off every other pew and, and we'll put signs up to social distance and we'll have ways of, of hygiene to, to wash our hands and, and to uh, try to be as sterile as we can. And, and we'll just try to function. And we'll have different places in our building where we can have small groups of people that can still hear and participate and maybe we can make this work. But maybe we can. See, we've never been that uncertain before. We've never been that exposed before. And you couldn't just pick up the phone and, and call another eldership and say, hey, what do you do in these circumstances? You know what their answer would be? I have no idea. We've never been in this circumstance before. And so all of a sudden, what we're going to talk about in these definitions were being experienced by people who had never had a moment that they knew of, of depression in their life. Who had never really been anxious people. Or they might get excited about things, but they never really worried to the point that it complicated their decision-making process. Or that it interrupted their lives. But they have now. 
And now there are people who would start reaching out online and say, okay, is there any help out there? Do you notice how quiet it was when I said that? That's the way it sounded when you would reach out and say, hey, here's the way I'm feeling. What, what's going on with me? I, I've never had these feelings before. Silence. Because people who were feeling like you felt in that silence didn't know whether they ought to say it out loud or not. Because then there might be a ripple effect that everybody say, I'm scared. Uh, I don't know what to do. Uh, I'm, I'm losing sleep. Uh, my children are asking me questions I can't answer. See, that's an unsettling feeling that a lot of us maybe had never really dealt with before. Now, those who had dealt with it, this is just one more thing for them to worry about. This was just one more thing for them to be depressed about. It wasn't the time for them to say, aha, how's it feel? Now, maybe you listen to me. That wasn't their approach at all. They're thinking, okay. Some of them were thinking, okay, I've just gotten my medication where it needed to be. I just really was able to approach people and function. And now, all that's interrupted. And guess what? Now, I can't go see my therapist. I finally built up enough courage to say, I've got to have help, and, and now I'm getting help. And now, when I call, they say, our office is temporarily closed. Now, therapists who reached out to their clients would say, look, we're going to stay in touch the best we can, and you know, I can't meet with you in person. I'm just describing the context to you is why we're here today, why we're able to have this discussion. And to me, that's a positive. Because here's what we need to know. This won't be the last time we face things that we didn't anticipate in our lives. And maybe next time, you and I are a little better prepared to say, we're going to take what we have, where we are, and we're going to take some of the things we've learned and we're going to utilize them in that environment so we can function. And so we can assist and help other people function. You see, that's kind of why we're able to be here today. And I'm appreciative that you're here. So let's define some of the terms. Anxiety. It's that apprehension or uneasiness of mind that usually is because of impending anticipated threats. By the way, if you see my wife making gestures over here, um, i just go ahead and tell you so we'll all be on the same page. I've already told the tech people. If, if I forget to move that forward, I can see it from here, but I get a little excited. I get into what I'm doing, and I know where I'm going and what I'm going to say, and I forget that I have illustrations for you. And you have handouts. You think, this guy, you know, his wife must have done those for him. Well, 
she didn't do the content, but she did do the graphic just so we're on the same page. So she's got this, these signals. Don't be trying to steal the signals, all right? You just, you just pay attention to what's on the screen. But when I'm looking over here, she's going to keep me on task. And so I got that little look when I glanced over there that there was a little apprehension <laughs> of a, an impending uh, neglect. And so I, I caught up with it. I'll do that from time to time. And if I see you looking at her smiling, I know I'm behind the slide and, and we'll try to catch up. But this is usually over something that maybe is anticipated or we're not sure it's going to happen, but it's a threat or a danger to us. It, it could be. I didn't do that. So, uh, but it could be a threat to us. And so I want to share with you two passages. One of those is on the screen that in our environment, spiritually speaking, that we use a lot and accurately so. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Philippian Christians and he's saying, Be anxious for nothing, but in prayer and supplication let your request be known unto God. In that same context, it talks about if we have that approach to life, then the peace of God that passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Now that's our goal. That's what we're shooting for. So I want you to hold on to those kind of things so as we progress through the day, you realize the difference between that's not being hampered by our worries or our anxieties and us just naturally having this anxious feeling when we're dealing with something we've not dealt with before. It's a natural thing. We'll talk about the, the natural part of that. But so keep that in mind. And if we just focus on that, well, you shouldn't be anxious if you're a Christian. Well, there's a context for that, and we'll, we'll come back to that, that context. But in Psalm 130 and verse 14, it reminds us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. So we begin to talk about some of these things in detail and looking at how we're made, then we're made in a way that if everything is working the way it's supposed to, and all the chemicals are released when they're supposed to be released, for the reason they're supposed to be released, then we are fearfully and wonderfully made in a way that we function, we would say, normally. Sometimes genetically, sometimes because of injuries, sometimes because of sickness, sometimes because of environment. Those things get upset a little bit. They get a little out of balance, and that'll help us keep that in mind. But I want you to be able to have those as we start. The cause is usually from a response to a stimulus in our environment or some kind of internal stimulus, and we'll look at some of, some of those as we go along today. But there is a normal anxiety to have, a normal fear that allows us to be safe. It allows us to respond when we should respond to certain dangers. And so that's the emotional response to a real or perceived imminent threat. I grew up on a, a farm, and so we had lots of snakes. And so there were certain places that to me looked snaky. You know what I mean? And so if I was getting close to that place and I stepped on something kind of slimy, my whole being immediately said, snake. Now, sometimes it wasn't a snake. 
But you see, it was built into my system. Here is an immediate threat. Get away from the threat. That's normal. What do you want to do when you see a snake? Get away from it. Well, you know, some of them aren't poisonous. Get away from the snake. Even if it's not poisonous, it has a job to do. Let it do its job and stay away from the snakes. But that's kind of built in. That's a normal response to threat. And if I have gone to the chicken house and gone get the eggs, and I've reached in there and there's a chicken snake a few times, you know what I did from then on? I look inside the nest from then on with a little caution, with one leg cocked, saying, okay, if there's a snake there, I'm leaving without the egg. Because the likelihood, the snake already has the egg. So that's a normal anxiety built into us so that when we see a perceived danger, we can distance ourselves enough to be able to look and see, is it a real danger or not? That's normal. So we want to keep that in mind. Those reaction is that surge of that uh, autotomic arousal that necessary for our fight or flight. That little adrenaline gets dumped in there. And boy, you can make tracks in a hurry when you get a little shot of adrenaline. You think, I didn't know I could run that fast. Well, normally you can't. Don't go out for the track next semester because you think you're the fastest person on earth because you cannot dump that kind of adrenaline all the time. Unless somebody's going to scare you before ever meet. And then eventually that fear will diminish from that. So that's a normal arousal that takes place. Let's keep that in mind. We don't want to use that word normal to diminish anyone else. We want to say we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so when those things are released at the right time, for the right reason, in the right way, they help us stay safe and to function. And we'll talk about when it's not and what happens in those conditions. When you talk about psychological <clears throat> anxiety, <coughs> Some experts, when they make reference to anxiety, that's exposure to our vulnerability. That is, they get a little deeper to say, well, here are things going on, but uh, sometimes it's because we feel like we are incapable of dealing with it. <clears throat> that we are, that we don't have those. Oh, back up. That it? See there? I got a good one, didn't I? If I don't get it, she'll finally just interrupt me. Because it doesn't do you any good to have slides that you want off all the time. In fact, it becomes an aggravation and anxiety, doesn't it? <laughs> to say, if i got to sit here all day about one slide off, why do you have slides? Why don't you just hand out something and I'll try to keep up best I can? And so we're going to make this work. Uh, she drives to, for me, too, by the way. She's our, our chauffeur, so we get places where we need to be and and on time because of her. So, but this perception of being um, inadequate is the psychological part of the anxiety. And that is which uh, we don't have the ability to quite measure up. And when it becomes really problematic is when we kind of build around that in a, some clinical uh, syndromes that become our function. We react that way every time. And we build up a system to say, I can't do that. Um, uh, I, I, I can't do that. 
How many times have, have we been put in a position, maybe we've been asked to do something uh, in a school setting? Or we've been asked to do something by the family that, that puts us in a place where we have failed before. Uh, we felt inadequate before. And as soon as we hear those words say, hey, can you? The answer is no, I can't. Let me give you a little humorous, but uh, not so humorous, <laughs> over a period of time example. When my wife and I were a really young couple, Neil told you we've been married uh, over 50 years, so that takes us back a ways. We hadn't been married very long, and uh, maybe had one child then, maybe two. And uh, so we're really young, and we had, I'd, I worked for the Postal Service, and I transferred from one city in Louisiana to another. So we hadn't been there long, and we were worshiping at this congregation, and hadn't been there too long. We got there on Sunday evening, and the preacher walked up and said, Hey, Jerry, um, uh, Eddie, that was our song leader, said, Eddie called, and he can't be here. Can you lead singing? Uh, I was going to say no, because I've never led singing. But before I could say no, my wife said no. She said, no, he can't. And I thought, well, okay. Well, I was going to say that, but when she said it, it sounded a little different. You know, I thought, she sits by me every worship. If she answers so quickly and so emphatically, maybe I shouldn't sing so loud. You know, I was trying to make a joyful noise, and it must not have been so joyful. You know, I, I just had this image in my mind, so I got where it wouldn't sing quite as loud. But you know what? I filed away. This is where the, the definition comes in with this psychological anxiety. I told myself over and over and over, you cannot lead singing. You can't do it. And so anytime I might, you know, if we're having a Wednesday night singing and, you know, somebody said, all right, all you men pick out a song. I'm, mm -mm, I, I can't lead singing. I can't do it. And so that inadequacy was just fixated in my mind. I can't do it. We went off to the Methodist School of Preaching and uh, the director of the school sent me this little rural place in, in Arkansas right out in the middle of the bean fields uh, to fill in for him on Sunday morning, teach Bible class and, and preach. And so I get there and, you know, there's not many people, a little rural uh, town and a couple of men are sitting there talking and so we chat for a while and I said, uh, kind of what's the order of the services? And, they said, oh, we used to sing a couple songs, you know, and have a prayer. And I said, okay, which one are you the song leader? He said, oh, neither one of us lead singing. I could hear that little woman saying, he can't lead singing. And I looked and I thought, this is it. Those two are not going to lead. All those inadequacies, this anxiety, I, can't, I couldn't remember what my Bible class was going to be about. He'd already given me the book and the lesson. All of a sudden, I couldn't remember my sermon. All I could think about is, what are you talking about? Neither one of you lead singing. So I went over to my wife, and she's sitting on the second row, and I said, <clears throat> pick out some songs we know and sing loud. <laughs> and she did, and we did. Uh, we, we took that occasion, but you know what I did after that? I thought, okay. I can't afford to be put in that kind of position again. And so I got where I volunteered to lead. I'd rather preach 10 sermons than lead one song. The anxiety of that would just 
immense. And you're going to say, well, he just threw his wife under the bus. And I wasn't blaming her. She didn't know any more about creating an, accurate, an inadequate attitude than I did. But I'm just telling you the experience. So when we're talking about this, this is real. And our conversation about it, we need to pay attention to what we're saying. She really wasn't saying, I didn't have the capacity to learn how to lead singing. I had never led singing. I was an extremely bashful person. And she'd never seen me take a public role in any sense. And she thought she was protecting me. But all of a sudden, that clinical syndrome of saying, can't do it, can't do it, can't do it. And I avoided any circumstance that might put me in that position to do it. I get up on Wednesday night when we have singing now, and, and I leave. I'm just not going to let myself get to the point where I can't do it. Now, there may be some folks who are in the audience saying, oh, when we have open singing, Jerry gets up there. Don't know what their response is, but uh, they're going to have to work through their own syndromes and their, their own anxieties. But I've got to make sure that I deal with that. So that's an example of what we're, we're talking about here with this psychological anxiety, that we <clears throat> deal with those matters in a way that won't, won't allow us to develop a pattern now, the definition of, of depression, <clears throat> it's a state of feeling pressed down in heart and unable to experience joy. Let me give you an illustration. If you were to take a pillow and you take a, a heavy iron, you know, the old kind of iron where you put in the fireplace and get hot, you know, the really heavy cast iron kind of iron, and you just put that on the pillow, uh, it would press that pillow down. And if you didn't leave it there very long, you'd go take the iron off the pillow and come back to its normal bullion. It'd just be your pillow. You know what would happen if you left the pillow on there for a while? For days? Weeks? See, it wouldn't get back to its normal bullion. Why? Press down too long. All of us have occasions where we kind of lose that joy. Something maybe we were excited about yesterday. Circumstances change, and so that's that pressing down of heart, or maybe a, a, a death of a loved one, or a trip we planned we don't get to go on, or our children go off to college, and we, we have those momentary experiences where our heart feels heavy, pressed down. That's normal depression that all of us from time to time would experience. And that's kind of the umbrella description of of feeling from discouragement to despair. So that's what we'll make that, that journey today in our discussion. From the normal discouragement of having the heart pressed down a little bit, and then when we remove whatever those circumstances are, it bounces back and we go on about our normal activities. And the other end of that where it's just despair. COVID created a lot of despair. It was pressed down for a long time. Because all of a sudden, the ripple effect of things that we could not do anymore. And how we could not help the ones we loved anymore. Pressed down. And it stayed down for a long period of time. And we want to make sure we understand that. You can't leave that iron on there too long. That whatever's pressing us, pressing us down. Psychological depression. That's the despondency and the dejection. <clears throat> and dejection that accompanied by feelings of hopelessness and inadequacy. 
so normal depression where joy gets taken away for a period of time and, and we bounce back. The psychological part is when that weight stays on there to the point that we get despondent, we no longer engage, or we dejected from the environment which would be helpful to us. And then we feel hopeless and inadequate. Some people who have never felt hopeless during this last year felt hopeless. <laughs> they tried all different things to try to shake it off and just couldn't seem to see far enough when this is going to be over. When they could go visit their loved one in the hospital. When they could have the funeral. It got real complicated. And that iron stayed on that pillow a really long time. So the causes might be a chemical imbalance, genetic predisposition, <coughs> negative thoughts. You see, of the 30,000 annual suicides in our nation, two-thirds of those involve depression. So guess what happened this past year? No, we don't know how all the stats yet, because all the stats we've really focused on for a year and a half now have been COVID stats. And you understand that's the immediate danger, so people deal with the immediate danger, but there's life around us that's still complicated. And with that, when they're hopeless and in despair, and even sources that they did have were cut off. Where do you think you're going to be? And some people who had never experienced that now are experiencing that. So it's multiplied and it's mushroomed. Sometimes the cause is chemical imbalance. Sometimes it's a genetic predisposition that we're born with, with genes that our body just doesn't produce the right level of, of endorphin and serotonin and those kind of things that that we would say would be, um, you know, kind of the happy genes where we, uh, uh, our endorphins are up where we're happy kind of people. Sometimes it just doesn't produce it. Kind of like a person who has uh, struggles with diabetes and his pancreas just doesn't produce the levels of insulin that they need. Keep those kind of things in mind because we develop this throughout the day. We talk about specific kinds of anxiety and specific kinds of depression. I'm not here to diagnose anybody. I'm just here while we're willing and able to have the conversation for us to have a broader understanding so we can help each other. And we can kind of identify where the resources are and we can be participants together in this conversation. That's really what this is about. It's a great opportunity for us to take something that's been tragic that we never really want to experience again and say, what have we learned? And now how can we use it to be better people and better people helpers? And when we struggle with those things, to be honest with each other and say, here's where I am and reach out for help and know where the help is. When you think about that, 7% of Americans experience episodes of major depression every year. 
You may not have thought about any of the stats. And this was, this was pre-COVID stats now. You see some stats now about uh, what it is, but they're mostly from surveys. You know, you haven't had a chance to research or study it. They haven't collected people because people can't, haven't been able to collect. And they can't study them for a period of time to say, this is where they were and this is where they are. And so they call and do surveys. Say, were you, did you experience anxiety? And let me tell you what anxiety is. Say, yeah. And, and so they kind of measure that and say, well, it, you know, it used to be that we said one in 10 and now uh, two in four. Well, that should be accurate if it's not more than that. Because now we know what anxiety is, don't we? Well, shake a nod. Do you know what anxiety is? You know, have you experienced that? He's like, oh, oh, that's what it is. And we're more sympathetic, hopefully, for each other. Major depressive episodes in a, a U.S. adults, 8.7 males will experience some major depressive episode this year. 5.3 females, 7.9 white, 5.3 black, and the major age group with the highest statistic when it comes to major episodes of depression are those between the ages of 18 to 25. Interesting, isn't it? So guess where the largest number of suicides come from. See, now we began to say, oh, that's what all those stats were about. That's what was going on. That's what we need to pay attention to. That ought to bring us to an occasion where we can spend our time today and say, I want to know as much as I can so that I can navigate things better myself, but more importantly, so I can be more empathetic. There's never been a time, not in my lifetime, there's never been a time when we have been more empathetic with each other than now. Because we were all in this together, like it or not, we were in this together. I didn't enjoy the, the COVID experience but I really have appreciated being in it together. For us to really be on the same page and say, hey, we can't let go of each other. Even if we have to social distance, we're gonna be emotionally connected and we're gonna be praying for each other and we're gonna be trying to learn about each other and boy, we're gonna get through this together. And you need to kind of drive a peg in those experiences that you had. And Lord willing, when we get to the end of this, I made, I don't know, five or six videos. People would call and say, look, we gotta have a little help here. And again, one of those times, you know, Jerry's a preacher and he's a counselor. And so, hey, Brother Martin, um, have you got something for us? Well, I can't call everybody back that's called me. And so how do you get that out there to say, look, these are just basic things that Jerry Martin's doing. And that's what it boiled down to. What I shared with them is what Jerry Martin had to do because I was also isolated. I couldn't go anyplace either. All my regular uh, resources cut off. 
I couldn't even call my medical doctor without getting a recording. Now, if I had an emergency, you know, he may or may not be able to see me because he may be dealing with somebody else that in worse shape than I am. And so all those things that I would normally just pick up the phone and take care of, Jerry Martin couldn't do it. So I made five or six videos dealing with different things. You know, that some of this was, was anxiety and depression. Some of that was people were trying to bury their dead and, and they, they couldn't have a funeral. And they come to, some of them couldn't even have a graveside. And how do we get through this? Okay, my children are asking questions and they can't sleep at night. How do I deal with this? So my wife and I are really low tech. We set her little phone up on a little tripod, you know, and I sat there in my office and, and I said, here it is, here's what I do. Um, and I just tried to encourage folks. And we posted that online. And if it's beneficial to folks, wonderful. I had Denise could probably correct my numbers, but we were blown away. The first one that I posted, like 5,000 people just immediately swarmed to that. Here was something out there that said, hey, we're drowning here, what can we do? So we did learn, hey, we can reach out to each other and communicate with each other, even if it's just a short, brief voice out there to say, we're in this together. There's somebody out here that cares. These are things that I'm doing to survive. Now, why don't you join us in this effort to survive? We're going to try to stay on time. It looked like on my watch that we were right there. I didn't get a signal from over here that's coming from within the, within me. And uh, because I have brought my watch with me, yeah. we'll pause there and we'll take up uh, the next session dealing with addressing general anxiety and separation anxiety. We're gonna break these down and just kind of look at them individually.